trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. You know, one of the the great perks of what I do is uh, each week I get a chance to sit down with my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com and get kind of a reality supplement. And Eric, it's great to catch up with you once again. Well, ditto, Brian, and that was uh, exceedingly kind of you to say. Well, I, I, I love to read... Your, your columns. In fact, I was just enjoying your column here a few minutes ago about the uh, Mach 1, the 2021 uh, or 2022 Mustang Mach 1. 21. Yeah, you got to have some good news. We need good news in this dark time, don't we? And that was a, that was a soul tonic. I was able to spend a week driving the new Mustang Mach 1, uh, which is the 480 horsepower amped up version of the Mustang GT for when 460 horsepower isn't enough. <laughs> what a wonderful car it is. Uh, and my luck continues to flow. They took the Mustang back yesterday, and guess what they dropped off as the replacement for it? What's that? The Dodge Challenger, or Dodge Charger Hellcat Red Eye, and that's the car for when 707 horsepower isn't enough. <laughs> that one has 797 horsepower, runs a quarter mile in 10 seconds, and tops out around 203 miles an hour. Well, gee, I, I'm sorry that you're working so hard these days, but... This sounds like the kind of work that a guy could really get into. Well, it's, it's an escape pod from the ugly reality that's all around us. So it's nice to, to return to some degree of normalcy, at least behind the wheel for a while. Well, and, and maybe we can come back to, to the cars here in a few moments. You, you mm-hmm. first and foremost, are an automotive writer, but you also have become, I think, a very trusted voice on issues re- pertaining to freedom and, uh, you know, if ever there was a time we needed somebody who had a good, clear take on, hey, freedom and what it is and how you maintain it, I think uh, this is that time. Let's talk about uh, the, the well, push for vaccines, because this seems to be one of the pressing threats against freedom. Yeah, well, I would settle just for facts. You know, that's one of the things that's so appalling to me is that we live in this fact-free era where facts seem to no longer matter with regard to whether it's the vaccine, whether it's the face diapers, whatever it happens to be. Um, if a fact comes up that runs counter to whatever the feelings or whatever the politics happen to be, uh, it's simply dismissed out of hand, usually with an angry outburst of Greta Thunberg-like rage. How dare you? Right. Now, in France, at least, I wrote a piece the other day called American Surrender Monkeys. You remember when the French were called Surrender Monkeys? I by, do. Uh, yeah. Back when well, we were eating uh, our freedom fries? <laughs> right. Well, the French are actually in the streets uh, in huge numbers after President Macron decreed that uh, people are going to have to be forcibly vaccinated, and if they're not, they're going to be excluded from, uh, from life, essentially. They're not going to be able to go to restaurants. They're not going to be able to go to bars and other pu- public things. And, of course, they're going to have to tote around their vaccine passport to show proof of jab. And the French uh, aren't having any of it, or at least a lot of the French are willing to actually do something about it, and uh, it, it depresses me that Americans seem so passive in the face of this. And these are the same people who insulted the French for supposedly being poltroonish. No, it's, it's a good point, and it's well taken. And, and, you know, just for those who don't know, the French 
Uh, apparently, the policy that their government has enacted says if you go into a store or a restaurant and you are not fully vaccinated, you are risking a six-month stay in jail. Mm-hmm. That's sure. pretty. That's that's pretty hardcore. Well, yeah, it's hardcore, and we should be concerned about that because I foresee that the same sort of thing is going to be applied here. The first step, of course, is to pariahize people. Notice the language that they're using. They're calling us the hesitant. They're accusing us of killing granny and all of those things. And that's the psychological groundwork for making it easy to criminalize people who, who object and disagree and who don't want to obey these edicts that are coming down the pike and who don't want to be turned into guinea pigs for big pharma and, and turned into experiments for God knows what purpose. Um, so I do foresee that happening unless people push back. And the tragic thing is that all it would take is for people to do what the French are doing and say, no, enough, we're not having it. You don't have to have a violent revolution just simply to say, no, I won't obey. I've been arguing for the past almost two years now that if people had refused to put on that filthy face diaper, said, no, I'm not doing it, this wouldn't be happening right now. All of this would be over. But the passivity, the, the, the willingness to just do it because, oh, I want to go to the store, I want to go to Disneyland or whatever it happens to be, that minor inconvenience a lot of people weren't willing to put up with. I'm not talking about the people who had to do it in order to earn a living. That's a different thing. I'm talking about the people who did it just because they didn't want to be inconvenienced. Yeah, the people for whom uh, preference wins out over principles. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and, the, the pressure is uh, ramping think, up, though. I, I can't remember a time where I've seen more uh, voices speaking out, editorial boards and so forth, saying it's time to stop asking and it's time to start making people get this vaccine. And I'm yeah, thinking they, they, they don't failed. even recognize what they're saying. Well, the cat's out of the bag. You know, they, they tried really hard to terrorize people for the past year plus, as we all know. And then they rolled out at warp speed this vaccine. And they managed to get, depending on whose numbers you believe, about 50 or so percent of the population to take it. But in the meanwhile, um, facts have leaked out about the fact that the thing causes a lot of really unpleasant side effects, including death. Facts have come out about that kids and young people and so on uh, are at greater risk from taking this, this vaccine than they are from the possibility that they might get sick from a disease that stands almost no chance of causing them any meaningful harm. And because of that, reasonable, logical people are saying, you know what, I think I'm going to pass on this. I'm not interested in, in taking this experimental vaccine and just assuming whatever the consequences happen to be because I'm not really at risk. It's just not a rational decision. But those people, ironically enough, are being portrayed as the anti-science people, as the irrational people, as the, peeling, as the selfish people. It's the most crazy moral inversion that I've ever encountered in my life. So here's, here's the loaded question of the day for you, Eric. How mm-hmm. far are they going to take us? How far will we go to try to get people to comply with these vaccine mandates? Well, I think they're going to try to push it to the wall, and I think they almost have to. They have backed themselves into a corner. They've committed to this narrative to such a degree that I don't see how they back off. So I think now it comes down to which side is going to ultimately prevail. Is it going to be the American spirit of independence and liberty and uh, and autonomy or are we all going to be good sheep and line up for our vaccines and our vaccine passports i hope to god not i'm worried that we will though 20 years ago i was urging people um, who didn't have to fly to not fly so as to avoid gate rape and so as to not allow the precedent of gate rape to become established as normal 
people went ahead and flew anyway because, oh, I just want to go to Disneyland. I want to visit my relatives, whatever it was. I'm not talking again about the people who had to fly for work. I'm talking about the people who flew electively and could have said no. Instead, they chose the convenience. They got on the airplane, and now gate rape has been established. And it's no coincidence that we're getting literally, literally, they're talking about actual rape now with these needles. Because what is, what is that? They're talking about sticking an, uh, an object into your body, which will inject you with something against your will. That is the technical definition in my mind of what a rape is. I think the only consolation I'm finding these days in terms of, as I look around for, okay, where's the light of freedom, is uh, there mm-hmm. are some great memes out there. Um, who, was the, who was the nemesis of He-Man? Was it Grace? Oh, yes, yeah, Skeletor. Skeletor. Yes, I love that. Oh, love that show. There's, there's a great one of, of Skeletor being told, or Skeletor saying, rather, if you don't get fully vaccinated and conform to the social orthodoxy, you will be relegated to the fringes of society. And the punchline is, joke's on you. I'm into that. <laughs> exactly. Isn't it ironic? Now, uh, you know, the left has become the establishment. The left now is the, the tyranny that's being imposed on the conservative or libertarian uh, minority, if it is a minority. And I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure whether it is a minority. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. But I do think we are at this point, and this isn't just the, the one thing about the Rona, but I think that generally speaking, we are now at a point of irreconcilable differences in this country, and it's a very, very interesting thing. I don't think we can come to terms any longer with these people on the other side because they're not content to live and let live. They're not content to, you know, if they want to wear a mask, fine, wear a mask. If they want to get the vaccine, fine, get the right. vaccine. Right. We're content to let them do that. I don't have a problem with that. But they insist that we wear the mask. They insist that we get the needle. They insist everything. Everything that they do ultimately comes down to we're going to make you do it. And if you don't do it, we're going to punish you. How do you come to terms with somebody like that? How do you come to some kind of an amicable compromise? I don't think you can. No, we've got to come back to this just the other side of the break. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. If you haven't checked out his website already, you really should. And I would say pay close attention, too, to the uh, comments at the end of his various articles as well. Eric, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about uh, why the vaccine is unsafe and ineffective, mm-hmm. or at least why, why people should be allowed to believe that and not be yep. uh, you know, sent off to the virtual gulag for yep. asserting so. We'll take a break. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, we've been hearing a lot about misinformation over the last week and actually some kind of a kind of uh, dark revelations coming out when uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is saying, oh, yes, you know, we're we're telling Facebook or we're, we're giving them them cues as to which content providers need to be deplatformed or need to be banned yep. or suspended. And if if you're suspended on one social media platform, you ought to be suspended on all of them. Sure. That's there's some pretty strong shades of uh, dictatorship showing through there. No question, but it also says something about them. It says that they're afraid of the truth. 
if they were right, if they had the confidence of uh, the, the factual unassailability of their position, they'd have nothing to worry about. They could simply put out their facts and let them stand or fall on their merits. But then, of course, they're afraid that uh, what, they, what, they, what they put forward as the science and as the facts uh, is, in fact, not the science and not the facts. And it troubles them deeply when real facts do come out. Uh, for example, uh, we've got the VERA system, the vaccine adverse uh, reporting system, that's reporting all of these really awful side effects, including side effects in kids, a number of whom have died as a result of having been jabbed. Now, you know, that's an important fact. It's something that any parent who has a kid would want to know about, right? Wouldn't you want to know that, you know, your kid is going to be subjected to some procedure that could potentially kill them? That's something I think you've got a right to know before you make an informed decision or before they, they submit to some kind of a procedure. But somehow that kind of a fact now has become an intolerable affront to this orthodoxy. And I've often used religious metaphors and analogies to describe what's going on, and that's precisely what it is. You can't raise your hand and say, well, wait a minute, I've got a question. No, heretic, unbeliever, right? You know, that's the way things are being characterized. You're not allowed to ask legitimate questions. If you ask a legitimate question, you're immediately shouted down and catcalled. And that is a hallmark of authoritarianism, and it's a kind of weird religious authoritarianism that we're descending into. No, I'm, I'm with you there. I, and, and it's probably because, you know, I speak and write for a living, and you do the same. I'm very concerned to see, you know, this, this push for we have, to, we have to have one true source of, of truth here, uh, meaning the government. And so I'll, I'll jokingly well, an tell people... An, ob- an objectively unreliable, an objectively dishonest source of information. That's, you know, that's, that's the bottom line here. We can talk about uh, the, the Pope of Science, Fauci, who's been caught in a number of lies... Uh, and that's, you know, that's a morally turpitudinous thing. And then we've caught him also just simply being wrong, which is to be expected, because nobody's infallible. You know, in order to have right. uh, a fair and sane and reasonable society, we have to be able to ask questions of everything. If we can't ask questions anymore, we get into dogma and we get into the Middle Ages. And who wants that? Uh, I, I just, it's, it's terrifying to me that people aren't asking these questions. Well, and, and Fauci actually admitted that for our own good, he lied to us back in February of 2020 about, oh, yeah, you know, don't don't wear masks. You know, he this is his words. You know, I told him not to wear masks, right. but that was just because I needed to shade the truth for your own good. And, and yet people will still trust him. I mean, it's right. how do we know when he's lying the next time for our own good? And, yeah. and how did this man become the arbiter of what's for our own good? Is he our mommy and daddy now? Well, I don't see this going anyplace good. And, you know, I'll, I'll joke around, and when, when someone tells me something that sounds really outlandish, I'll be like, I'll believe it when a government official tells me, you know, just to, to illustrate. Well, sure. there, the, if you, if you want to know what's going on, you have to understand truth is not something that is handed to you by someone in authority. Well, and this, this kind of, this bizarre trustingness, if, if that's a word, I'll coin a neologism there. Most people, when they go shopping for a car, want to know about the warranty. They want to read the fine print before they sign a car loan, right? I mean, I, don't, I can't think of a single person who would walk into a car dealership and say, okay, sure, uh, just, just tell me what to pay, and you know, here, I'll sign right here, and I, don't, I won't bother reading the paperwork. You know, people understand that it's important to, to understand what they're getting into when they buy a car, but they somehow don't seem to have the, the, want to exercise that same due diligence when it comes to their health or even or their liberty. 
no. And and hopefully, I mean, look, we're, we we you and I would love to talk to to the uh, broadest audience possible and have more people embrace that message of liberty. Not because we're giving up, just because it's it's a true message. It's a it's a good message. But I'll settle for even a tiny minority of people for whom the truth matters more than some comforting illusion. Here, put your mask on. You'll feel better. Mm-hmm. Well, here's something to give you heart, and it is that. If you look through history and if you look at great ethical changes that have happened, both for good and for evil, it's always been the result of a relative minority of committed people who took a stand and pursued what they thought was important. Uh, The great mass of people, unfortunately, sort of go whichever way the wind blows. So it really is up to us, people on our side, to do what we can to preserve and protect liberty and just not let it be extinguished by these other people on the other side of the fence. Well, I think the, the key is don't become the monster you're trying to fight. But, Absolutely. Uh, man, I'll tell you, there, there are folks that appear to be using some pretty monstrous tactics to try to get their way. It's, it's yeah, a disturbing. Lot of, you know, the, people who are pulling, the people who are pulling the strings, I think it's fair to characterize them as evil for what they're doing. But I think for the broad masses of people, I think they just haven't thought it through. They haven't considered the ramifications. You know, if we're going to let ourselves be subjected to a mandatory vaccination in this case, which is a medical procedure, what is to prevent them from demanding that we submit to the next one and the next one after that? At what point do you draw the line? I think people need to start thinking about that and perhaps start having second thoughts about whether they want the government and these corporations that have become effectively the government to essentially control them like cattle or like animals that you take to the vet. And, and you know, we're going to just ha- let them do to our bodies whatever they decide is good for us, per Dr. Fauci. Eric, let's, let's take our last few minutes here, um, and I want to shift to some good news here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we, we've sounded the, the warning, po- folks, if you're not paying attention, it's time to open your eyes. Let's talk about some car stuff. You had, oh, yeah. you had an article here. Uh, I know you've, you have made a very strong case about uh, electric cars and how, mm-hmm. you know, even though they're being held up as this is the panacea, this is the answer to all of mm-hmm. our climate concerns and so forth. Did I really see that uh, there's an electric airplane? Yes. How, well, how you, is you that supposed to work? It doesn't exist. It's okay. vaporware. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know whether you've been following the fiasco with Lordstown Motors, um, which, which produced the vaporware fake non-existent electric truck at the old Lordstown, Ohio uh, plant that General Motors used to actually build cars at uh, and ended up, I think, sinking something like $115 million worth of GM's investment in this thing that never produced a single truck wow. and is now under investigation by the SEC. Well. Uh, on a parallel track, United Airlines announced the other day uh, that they're going to commit to uh, an electric airplane, if you can imagine such a thing, which triples down on all of the functional problems with electric cars. It's one thing to, to keep an electric car moving on a uh, horizontal plane, and if it runs out of range, well, you just roll to a stop. But when you're up in the air, can you imagine the energy it would take to put something up in the air and then keep it in the air, and then when you run out of range... When you're at 15,000 feet, I think they better start putting in parachutes in each seat rather than, than sickness bags. No, I've, I'm with you on that. It's a, it's a scary thing, uh, but, but I believe, you correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, there was a time when uh, I think there was a, a solar-powered 
uh, airplane that was made. And I'm talking, it's like a glider, mm-hmm. an experimental. Do you remember seeing well, this? you could make an ultralight. Yes, absolutely. There, there was, I know exactly the one you're talking about. It was called the Gossamer or something or That's other. That's it. Yes. Yes, but it was, you're talking about an extremely ultralight glider, essentially. What United is talking about is a regional, essentially a jet without the jet engines. With, with propellers that are driven by electricity. Now, this is going to be a, an extraordinarily heavy thing, necessarily, in order to be able to power the oh, propellers yeah. that will be necessary to haul, I don't know, how many people are in a regional airplane? 25, 30 people, passengers? That's a lot of weight, plus all of their stuff. To get that up in the air and to, to keep it in the air is going to take a staggering amount of electrical, electrical energy. And then you've got to factor in, well... What if there's a storm front ahead and the airplane has to divert and circle for 15 minutes and 15 minutes longer than the range that it's got? Color it's headed and it's not good. Color me skeptical. Eric Peters, thank you so me much too. for visiting with us this week. You bet, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Once again, just a quick uh, shout-out to my sponsors. I want to thank our great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, Pure Light. You can go to their website at Pure-Light.com. And I want you to check out Life-Saving Food. Dot com. There's a link to each one of these in the show notes at the com. I've talked a lot about food storage over the years, and, you know, I know for some people it seems overwhelming. Well, you know, a year's supply of food, and for a lot of people that'll sound familiar. They've been told, you know, since they were kids, it's a good idea to have a year's supply of food, but it seems overwhelming when it comes to getting started. So I want you to check out what lifesavingfood.com has to offer, uh, because if you want to start with something small, like a 72-hour Food supply. That's enough to get you through an unexpected emergency. It's something you could take with you if you had to run. I don't know, in case of a wildfire or something like that. From there, you can move up to a couple of weeks supply, maybe a month supply. They have a lot of different packages to choose from. Many are very, very affordable, but it's all good long-term food storage. Again, you'll find a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Well, it's, it's clear that right now there are a lot of things teetering on the edge. And I don't say this to invoke any kind of a sense of apocalyptic doom, you know, hanging over our heads. But it's not the first time that shifts like we are seeing have taken place. I guess I should just go ahead and put my cards on the table. I'm a big fan of the, the fourth turning type of approach to historical cycles. If you're not familiar with the fourth turning, this was written by a couple of historians, Strauss and Howe, published back in 1997. And essentially what they're looking at is they're looking at a what's called a seculum. And a seculum is an old Roman word that describes essentially the seasons that will take place within a very long lifetime, 80 to 120 years roughly. But these are the things that a person would likely see play out in terms of societal attitudes. So they're not predicting especially events. They're talking about attitudes. And it's, it's interesting in the sense that it really does kind of approximate to the seasons of the year. Spring begins with hope and with green and growth and opportunity. And 
you know, things are pretty easy. Summer, things are easy as well and getting a little more comfortable to the point that maybe we're starting to relax and eh, maybe uh, maybe we start to, to get a little bit soft around the middle. Fall comes and with fall comes an unraveling of sorts in which things begin to break down. You know, the leaves begin to turn and fall. And, um, and I, I'm using, you know, the imagery of the seasons to describe this, but apply that to societies. And you will see that eventually winter comes. And usually with winter comes a crisis. And typically in, in these turnings, and there's you know first, second, third, and fourth turnings, by the time that fourth turning has completed, when the winter snows have receded, and that first turning begins anew, the landscape almost always looks very different on the other side of that fourth turning. There's some great resources online, but there's nothing that would beat actually reading the book. It's If nothing else, it'll just make you go, oh, well, I kind of recognize where we are at this particular point in you know our our historical cycles. No, you can't predict specific events, but you can definitely see some of the trends. And we are deep in a fourth turning right now, which means there are a lot of things that will be hanging in the balance. Three of the main hallmarks of a fourth turning include economic upheaval, widespread civic decay and unrest, <laughs> We've seen a little bit of that, haven't we? And war. Sorry, that's that's the bad news. You look back over the Great Depression, World War II, that was a fourth turning. You look back at the Civil War and Reconstruction, fourth turning. Even the American Revolution and the founding period after it, fourth turning. So we're due for another one. Even the timing works out pretty well on this. I'm sorry, I get, I, once I start down that rabbit hole, I get kind of excited. It's just, it's an interesting way to look at history where it's more cyclical rather than just linear with this timeline. And okay, there's a hash mark here because this happened and then this person was born. This is a much more, um, I think, realistic way of looking at why things are happening and how things tend to happen. But one of the questions that a lot of people have on their minds at that point is, okay, how do I protect myself when things are crazy? And here's an example. So I'm going to give you three countries with three dates. France, 1788. Russia, 1916. Germany, 1937. All of those dates have something in common. In France, in 1788, political conditions had been getting questionable, but there was no apparent need to panic. That came the following year with the outbreak of the French Revolution. And from that point on, it was dangerous to even go out in the streets of Paris. So many people had become enraged that even if you were not a member of the aristocracy, you could easily become collateral damage. And so it would have been wise if in 1788 you decided to pack your bags and remove yourself from the epicenter of what was happening. Likewise, in 1916, Russia was at war with the Germans. The populace was becoming increasingly vocal about the state of the economy. Even the Tsar believed that the people simply had to accept the situation and muddle through. But a year later, soldiers were deserting, a host of political wannabes who were vying for power, and anyone who simply wanted to be left alone to run his own life was now afraid to go out on the streets. And of course, in Germany, prior to Kristallnacht in November of 1938, all the warnings were there that the country was somehow beginning to unravel. But virtually everyone assumed that somehow things would be all right. A year later, Germany was at war with five nations and had invaded three others. 
people were being rounded up, imprisoned, and or shot. And those who sought to get out of Germany found they were no longer allowed to do so. Now, this is analysis from Jeff Thomas, who writes under uh, writes for the International Man uh, website. But his point is that history is full of similar cases. In hindsight, the warning signs have always been there. An increasingly autocratic government, an increasingly volatile and irrational political struggles, also mounting debt, increased taxation, a declining economy, and the removal of basic freedoms for the greater good. See, that's the part that kind of <laughs> kind of rhymes, right? In 1929, if you lived in the U.S., you might have just paid $2,735 for a new Packard Custom 8 Roadster, a means of showing off your recent gains in the stock market. A year later, you might well have offered it for sale for just $100 as all your previous price offers. There were none of them, no takers. And you, like they, had been wiped out in the crash, and 100 bucks could mean the difference between eating and and not eating. In 1958, you might have been enjoying a daiquiri at El Florida in Havana and joking to friends about Las Barbados, the tiny rebel force hiding in the Sierra Madre. A year later, the joking had ended and private businesses like El Floridita had been nationalized by the new government. See, for millennia, the playbook has been the same. Countries that had been wonderful to live in began to deteriorate from within And the great majority of residents had failed to read the tea leaves, the warning signs, that in the future, conditions were not going to get better. In fact, they were going to get worse. But why should this be so? Well, Jeff Thomas says, in 1787, in the midst of the Scottish Enlightenment that gave rise to Adam Smith, economist and historian Alexander Teitler is credited as having said, a democracy is always temporary in nature. It cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury. And the result is that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. Now, he further noted that the latter stages of any such decline are marked first by complacency, then by apathy. The final stage is invariably one of bondage. In some cases of collapse, the country is taken over by an outside force, but invariably, as stated above, the rot always starts from within. It's simply human nature for the majority of any population when passing through challenging times to fall prey to the promises that somehow a change in the form of government can and will result in the elimination of problematic conditions. I mean, does any of this sound familiar? But how do those who make such claims sell their ideas? Do they suggest that everyone should work harder and practice a greater level of abnegation? Abnegation, rather? No, he says. Although such people may exist and become outspoken even, they are historically never the individuals whom the majority of the population follow. Invariably, the majority, having become complacent and pathetic, Choose those who promise to take from one group and share the spoils among those who are less productive. And as illogical as this promise is, most people, even if they doubt the reality of the claim, tend to think, well, it couldn't be any worse. I might get something, so let's give it a try. Got to come back to this in just a few moments. But the point is that it's a question of timing. How do you position yourself so that you can emerge relatively unscathed 
from this latest cycle of history. We'll share that with you coming up right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you a commentary from Jeff Thomas, who writes uh, for the International Man website. We're talking about a question of timing, and I appreciate that he's pointing out there there were points in history where other people probably had a pretty strong indication that, no, everything's okay, everything's cool, we, we can make it from here. The dates that he gives, you know, what it would have been like to live in, in France in 1788, or Russia in 1916, or even Germany in 1937. The warning signs were there for people who were paying attention, but most of the populace didn't see what was happening until it was too late. And within just a year or two, things were very different in every one of those situations. One of the things he points out here is that people who, you know, you would think would would see what's going on and go, whoa, we got to step back from the edge of the abyss, often don't. In fact, he says most people think, well, it couldn't be any worse. I might get something, you know, if, if we just, you know, start uh, throwing in with the, those in power, especially those who promise to take from one group and share the spoils among those who are less productive. And he gives a case of this. He says a very simple case in point is the Bahamas election of 1967, in which Bahamians elected their very first man of the people as their premier. Under his rhetoric of Bahama for the Bahamians, he promised the large underclass of Bahamians he would take the top jobs away from the British bankers and other business leaders and that the spoils would go to the average Bahamian. Now, of particular interest were the luxury vehicles driven by successful businessmen. Bahamians in the thousands imagined that the senior staff in banks would be fired, that they themselves would be given the jobs and the fancy Jaguar saloons. And that did happen to some extent. Those who were loyal to Prime Minister Lyndon Pindling did move up to management positions overnight. Positions for which they were not qualified. Not surprisingly, they were unable to learn decades of knowledge overnight, and they subsequently lost their new jobs, or the banks lost business on a massive scale. And the Jaguars? Well, it turned out there were thousands of Bahamians for every Jaguar that existed, and for 99.9%, there would be no previously imagined spoils. Instead, their lives headed south in the coming months and years as wealth flowed away from the Bahamas, most of it never to return. In other countries, the details have been quite a bit more complex, but the scenario and the outcome have been the same. Once the warning signs begin to appear, it's important to remember that historically, the process never reverses itself. An apathetic population is not one that will suddenly decide to roll up its sleeves and get the country once again on a productive footing. Invariably, the population jumps on the toboggan of empty promises and rides it downhill until it reaches the economic bottom. So circumventing such a situation becomes a question of timing. When it becomes clear that the telltale signs are reappearing once more, those who are wise will acknowledge that sands are running out and it's time to move on. And the signs tend to be the same in any locale, in any era. They're quite easy to see, says Jeff Thomas. The difficult part is choosing to make an exit whilst it's still easy to do so. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know that, I don't know where you would go. 
I don't know where, you know, is there any place really to run? Not that I can think of. Besides, there, there are things that, uh, you know, I, I would be willing to stand and, and fight for. So I don't want you to feel like, well, he's describing doomsday, all right, this is the apocalypse. I'm just saying it, it couldn't be more clear that there are some difficult times approaching. They're not going to last forever, but the only way to get to the other side is to move through them rather than try to find a way around them. You're not going to find one. Now, I want to share a quick commentary here from Howard, from James Howard Kunzler. Um, this is, well, he's got a way with words. I'll just let him tell it. This is Countertruths Unspin. He says, back in the day, LSD trips were mostly a matter of personal choice. Today, though, all you have to do is wake up somewhere between Montauk and the Farallon Islands, and your senses are overwhelmed with hallucinations. The public used to depend on newspapers and TVs to suss out reality, but that filter's long gone. Replaced by a relentless narrative machine, and all it does is spin out one technicolor, one technicolor whopper after another. But the trouble is, narrative is not the truth. Generally, it's the opposite of truth. It's manufactured counter-truth. The more narrative you spin, the faster you must spin off new supportive narrative to conceal the untruth of your previous narrative. Until the national hive mind is lit up in unreality where nothing makes sense and the very language that separates humanity from the rough beasts becomes a social poison. So his point is that America is on a bad trip. I don't disagree with him on this one. The country has lost its way psychologically. Two things that will be required to bring it out of the fugue state it tripped into five years ago. Some significant shocks to the system and the passage of time. Now, those shocks are in the offing, and the Joe Biden regime, meaning Barack Obama and his right-wing people who run things, are looking more and more desperate as auguries manifest. See, the current uh, tactical hustle is to amp up paranoia over the receding COVID-19 episode. It looks like an attempt to smokescreen the emerging evidence of massive and widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election and the growing eagerness of a few other states besides Arizona to mount audits of what went on last November 3rd. The supposed surge in new COVID cases is really just a tiny blip, considering it comes off a baseline of close to zero cases in many places. 11,140 people so far have died from COVID vaccinations. That's according to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS. Last week, 2,092 deaths from vaccinations were added versus 1,918 deaths from the virus. Countries with the highest vaccination rates are showing the most new COVID cases. Yes, he says, it's looking like the idea to set up the unvaxxed for blame as Joe Biden's legitimacy dissolves and uh, the country finds itself in a political crisis because there's nothing in the Constitution that provides for removing a president elected fraudulently, even if the nation is crumbling around him. Vaccine disinformation is killing people, Mr. B warned last week. CBS 60 Minutes led its Sunday night show with more COVID scare stories. The message is everywhere. You must get vaxxed up. And if you don't, there may be severe penalties. Now, those likely to opt out of a vax are exactly those people who distrust what the government tells them. Meaning, probably people who did not vote for the current occupant of the White House. As it happens, though, the number of people who distrust government is expanding even beyond that demographic. 
The regime must know that evidence of massive voting fraud and the loss of political legitimacy will coincide with a financial train wreck that looks to be chugging out of the station this very morning with all asset indexes tanking as I write. James Howard Kunstler says there are even fresh reports of an asteroid heading directly toward Washington, D.C. this week. So said Devin Nunes, ranking member on the House Intel Committee over the weekend. The asteroid is the long-rumored return from deep space of special prosecutor John Durham with some interesting announcements concerning the most poisonous narrative of this era, the Russiagate collusion hoax, finally revealed as a seditious conspiracy by high government officials in the Department of Justice and the intel agencies. Kunzler says, I wouldn't be surprised if Mr. Obama and his wing people turned up in that mix. Won't that be a nice accessory to Joe Biden's presidential flameout? Won't that be just the right moment for China to move against Taiwan? Logs of mighty feats don't desert me now. He says the turmoil could get pretty hairy by summer's end. Money will be flooding the system with the predictable loss of money's legitimacy at the same time that a massive debt repudiation gets underway. Hyperinflation and debt default at the same time? Sounds improbable, I know, since the former means too much money, and the latter means money is disappearing like crazy. What it really means is that everything gets repriced rapidly and violently, and not necessarily in U.S. dollars. In fact, he says banks will not like this one teensy-weensy bit. James Howard Kunstler says, All this will certainly lead to a lot of people suddenly going hungry, because that's how going hungry works. It only takes a couple of days of not eating. Goodness knows what will be happening in the streets then. These are the sort of shocks we're facing. Things get very real. Elbowing out the hallucinations, the long, strange trip sputters out and then begins the long, hard job of finding a way to live that actually makes sense. Hint. It's smaller, slower, closer to home, and in many ways, better. I don't know why. I mean, he, he shares a lot of bad news there, but that last line from James Howard Kunstler actually brings me some peace. How to live in a way that actually makes sense? How about something smaller, slower, closer to home, and in many ways better? I think my best and first advice is, and I probably would do well to take this too, is stop focusing so much on politics. Stay aware, but don't stay immersed in it. And focus on some of those things that are closer to home, that make your life in so many ways better. We'll get through this. I promise we will. We just have some heavy lifting ahead of us, so you know, don't shy away from it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.